Amen. Amen. Paul's been writing to the church of Corinth. I feel like my introduction is always the same when I walk into a book because the book doesn't change, and that's what my introduction is. So <laughs> Paul's been writing to the church of Corinth about unity. He's been admonishing the local church toward unity through maturity in the faith. In the present section of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the resurrection. Paul says, there absolutely is a resurrection. It is wrong to teach that there isn't a resurrection. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so will we be raised from the dead? He has concluded his argument, and now he moves on to talk about the nature of the resurrected body, the nature of the glorified body, which is a matter of some question in our time. Uh, there is the problem of the resurrection that people pose. If there is a resurrection, do you mean that when Jesus Christ returns to earth, there will be all of these bodies digging themselves out of graves around the world from the time of Adam, those who lived from the time of Adam until the time Christ returns. That would be a lot of bodies pulling themselves up from the dirt. And there's, and there's a problem. There's a problem with that. Haven't those bodies returned to the dust? Aren't they decomposed? And haven't some even been cremated? What about the saints who have been burned at the stake? In the resurrection, will they not get to experience a resurrection because their body was destroyed? Uh, the doctrine of the resurrection, the belief that it is our current bodies that will be resurrected, is the reason behind embalming. It's a very religious reason. It's the reason behind embalming. It was for the Egyptians the reason behind mummification because they believed their present body would be their body on the other Side. So people have strived to preserve dead bodies for aeons. Uh, but today I think we learned something different about the resurrection. And the problem of the resurrection, the problem of decomposition, is not actually a problem. We also see some questions answered about the idea of soul sleep today. So a very interesting morning we have this morning. A very interesting text we have before us. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 35, going all the way to verse 49. But someone will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else, but God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. And there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is one. Another, There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable 
body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. There you go. In a nutshell, there's the nature of the resurrection. Uh, we can just go home now, right? Clearly explained, very easy to understand, correct? Yes? Uh, no, we'll walk through these verses like we normally do, like is our custom here at the RC. Verse 35. Paul begins talking about the nature of the resurrection by raising a question that someone, there's a hypothetical question that someone might ask, right? Paul is, he has some foresight. He said, here's the resurrection. Now he's imagining what kind of question is coming next. And he's answering it uh, beforehand. Uh, this is it's a preventative measure to keep people from asking stupid questions, okay? So Paul is answering it. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And in verse 36, you see immediately, Paul calls the person who would even raise such a question a fool. A foolish person. And the reason I think Paul calls them a foolish person is because they're not thinking about thinking about the resurrection in terms of Christ's resurrection. Paul is thinking about the resurrection in terms of Christ's own resurrection. Paul met the resurrected Christ, the glorified Christ. People met the resurrected Christ. There was something about the resurrected Christ's flesh that was different from the flesh he had before. Paul says, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And he begins using this imagery. He begins using an illustration that would make sense to people in this Middle Eastern culture where farming and ranching and shepherding, it's, it's a big deal. You see it everywhere. Uh, we live in an area where we see lots of farming and lots of ranching, perhaps, uh, where there is lots of gardening and lots of backyards. Uh, you have a chili garden yet? I'm thinking of playing a chili garden this year. That's going to be awesome. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. This planting language. That which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. Do you grasp this illustration? Now when we do plant something, we plant the seed, right? And Paul here is saying that seed actually has to die so that the plant can come forth. And when you plant a seed, you're not just growing something that looks like a seed, like the body that comes forth. It's not just going to be a seed popping out of the ground. Like It's a different body. So you plant the seed, the seed dies and bears a different body, a different type of body. So God 
in His providence and His eternal wisdom has given given us an illustration in farming, an illustration of the resurrection. And we get to witness resurrection when we keep gardens and when we plant fields because the seed dies and it produces a different kind of body, not just another seed popping out of the ground. The seeds produce corn. Seeds produce wheat. Seeds produce all kinds of fruits that are not, that don't have the appearance of seeds themselves. Right? And this is the illustration Paul is using. And I think immediately we can we can take something away from this illustration that resurrection is not reanimation. The bodies of the saints aren't simply going to be reanimated and saints crawling out of the ground at the resurrection. No, this is a resurrection, not a reanimation. We'll talk about that a little more as we move through the text and see, see Paul explain himself. Verse 38, but God gives it a body. It doesn't look like the seed. God gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own. What it looks like before it is planted, it looks like that because God decided it should look that way. What it looks like after it is planted and grows and blooms or, or bears fruit or whatever, it looks that way because God has decided it should look that way after so-called resurrection, right? After the seed dies and the plant comes to life, it has that kind of body because God decided it should be so. He wrote it into the genetic code contained within the seed. And Paul moves on. All flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts. You're aware that people are different from beasts, right? Uh, our flesh is, is different. There's one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts. And another flesh of birds and another of fish. Different things look different. Their flesh is different. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. They are all beautiful, but each one has a beauty of its own right, a glory, a majesty of its own according to the will of God, just as God wished, according to verse 38 there. In verse 42, Paul takes this illustration and he explains it. Resurrection is it's not reanimation. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also, it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Here Paul actually talks about the differences between the earthy body, the body we are born with naturally, and the spiritual body, the body that is to be given in the resurrection. 
Notice what he says about how he describes the earthy body, the body we are born with at our first birth, a biological birth. It is sown in dishonor. What do we teach about the human condition from birth? People are born into sin, the sin of Adam. That people are essentially depraved, like Adam was essentially depraved. That people are unrighteous, like Adam was unrighteous. The, the human body, biologically, in the first birth, it is sown in dishonor, ravaged by sin because of unrighteousness. Under the penalty of sin. Therefore, it ages and it dies, which we will see in Paul's next description. It is sown in weakness. But as, as strong as we think we are in our youth, what always happens to the human body? The biological body, the first body we receive, it grows old and frail and ultimately dies. Everything becomes more difficult as we age. And there's a period of growing and becoming stronger as we perceive it, but still as strong as people can become. Is it really that powerful in light of everything that is or exists or in light of the fact that we will all lose our strength? The human body is weak because it is ravaged by the penalty of sin. Therefore, it decays, it grows old, it dies, and it doesn't even keep its form when it dies, it returns to dust. And that's how God described it when he spoke to Adam in the Garden of Eden following Adam's sin. That's Genesis chapter 3, right? But the biological body, the first body we have, is sown a natural body. It is material. It is the image of God, yes. And we would say that there is a soul there, but the body itself is material, which is why it can grow old and why it can die and why the soul can be somehow disconnected from the natural body and continue to exist even when the natural body dies, perishes in some natural body. But notice how Paul describes the resurrected body, the glorified body here. Instead of being sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, majesty. It is beautiful, no longer corrupted by humanity's depraved and unrighteous nature, no longer ravaged by sin. It is glorious. It's not sown in weakness. Instead, it is raised in power. It has about it a strength that will never fail. You know how in this life we say that our spirit is willing to do much, but our flesh is so weak. And there's much we want to do, but our bodies get tired and we have to rest from our labors, not so with the resurrected body will not lose its vitality, it will not lose its strength, it will not age and grow frail and die. The body will be just as willing as the spirit is. 
and it will never lose its vigor. It will never lose its zeal for serving and working for the Lord. Which brings me to Paul's next descriptor concerning the resurrected body, the glorified body. Instead of being sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now, no, this does not mean that we will only exist as a spirit being. Right? When Paul says spiritual here, he means heavenly. Something not from biological woman. Instead, something that comes from heaven. Something that is directly from Christ. And all people will be equal in that way. It has raised a spiritual body. A body in the image of Christ's glorified body. He says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And though it be material, it is not like the biological body because we do not inherit sin. It is not merely material, but it is perfectly united with the soul and with the spirit. And there's a reason I use soul and spirit separately here. I'll explain that when we get to it in this passage. Verse 45, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man, Adam, was the federal head of creation. I think we've covered this in a previous sermon here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He was the federal head of humanity. And when he sinned, he handed all of humanity, all of his descendants, over to sin because he was the federal head. But when Christ came, he perfectly fulfilled the law, became the federal head of creation in a perfect way, gave his life as a substitutionary atonement for the sin of humanity, and in doing so, became a life-giving spirit. It's not at that moment Jesus finally like became a spirit. No, Jesus has always been a spirit, but in his flesh, particularly in the human flesh that he assumed in the incarnation of the human nature that he assumed in the incarnation, he ascended to the throne of David. He ascended to federal headship within creation, not merely over it, but within it because of his flesh. And when he did that, he, he gained the authority to give eternal life. To be the one who would give the glorified body, the resurrected body. And Paul explains the nature of the spiritual. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. And this is why I use soul and spirit not interchangeably, but separately, and why I think people have body, soul, and spirit here. As the soul is placed within the natural body, the first body we have in our biological birth, the soul is placed in the body of moment of creation. It's one of the ways we define personhood, like people have what we call souls. It's the essence of our being. But here, Paul differentiates spirit from soul and he says, the spiritual does not come first, but the natural, the natural body 
And then the spiritual. Spiritual comes after the natural. And I can't help but go back to John chapter 3. And Jesus is teaching about the new birth. We have this weird term in Christianity, this weird phrase. We say that we're born again, right? Now, anybody listening who hasn't read Jesus' teaching in John chapter 3, what, what the heck do you mean by born again? That doesn't make much sense. This is the same question Nicodemus raises in John chapter 3. And I just want to start in John chapter 3, verse 1 here, so we can see what it means that we are born again and see that Paul is exactly in line with Jesus' teaching. Now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Seems a little off topic, but okay, Jesus will run with it. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Here Jesus is teaching the same thing Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians. Only Jesus taught it first. That means Paul's getting his teaching from Jesus, which is exactly what we want. That which is born of flesh is flesh comes first, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. That's the born again. It comes second. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. Now Jesus describing the work of the Holy Spirit. You hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. This happens by the Spirit's will alone. The Holy Spirit decides who will be born a spiritual being, for to use Paul's language. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. There Jesus referring to himself. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, which is the result of being born again, not the cause of it here. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And he who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. The light came into the world, and men loved the darkness, rather than the light, because the deeds were evil. And so we see that Paul is here holding this born-again theology in line with what Jesus taught. And I find it so interesting 
Because we don't think about the differences between soul and spirit. And normally we don't hear teaching that suggests that a person spiritually begins to exist sometime after birth. But that is what it means to be born again, like the spirit. We're spiritually born. And that spirit that that is born in us, of us, I'm not really sure how to describe that, but that spirit that is born tries to unite with this natural body, and there we have conflict in the flesh. That's why Paul writes, like he does in Romans chapter 10, man, spiritually, there are things that I want to do, but my body just doesn't do them. My, my body can't keep up with this born-again spirit, right? I don't do what I want to do, and I do the very things I don't want to do. There's just conflict within me. But when the natural body dies, and according to Paul here, it is a seed. I think a metaphorical seed, because I don't think other bodies are just going to sprout up out of the ground, right, where those bodies were, were buried, right, right where the seed was. So I, think it's, I think it's metaphor, it's an illustration to describe what's happening, like all the suffering we endure, all the tribulation we endure, everything that God puts us through on this earth, every war we experience or hear about or follow, every rumor of a war, tragedy, anxiety, suffering, the learning that we go through, the jobs we have here, the passions and zeal that we have here, the fact that our spirit wants to do so much but our bodies can't keep up. All that is conditioning for this body Paul describes as a seed. And it will produce who we will be, what we will be in our glorified bodies in the resurrection. We call that process sanctification. But it's interesting that the body we will receive is not the body we have now. It is a glorified body. And our spirit will be resurrected to the new body. The old body will not be reanimated. And that brings about a certain question of soul sleep, doesn't it? I don't think there is a soul sleep. And this passage doesn't quite answer that question definitively, right? But elsewhere, Paul writes, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. My soul is present there with Christ, right? I don't think there is a soul sleep and that our soul awaits resurrection. You hear the language I'm using. I'm using it on purpose. Like our soul doesn't await resurrection, but we are born spiritually and our spirit is meant to be united with a body, but the body we have now is natural, not spiritual. And so that spirit must wait to be united with a body. Not that it's sleeping, but that it is with Christ waiting. Right? But one day there will be a resurrection, and instead of receiving the natural bodies we had before, as if it were reanimated, the spirit will be resurrected in a glorified body. It will be a brand new, a brand new body. 
people ask, well, how old do you think we'll look in the glorified body? Like, will everybody look like they're the same age? Which is a question that makes little sense, right? Will people look like they did when they died? <coughs> uh, nobody knows. I imagine not, though, since their body continues to decompose and die. And Paul tells us here exactly what the glorified body will look like. Are you ready for this? I can tell you exactly what the glorified body will look like. Verse 38, God gives it a body just as he wishes. There you go. However God wills the glorified body to look, that is the way it will look. But it is not the same exact body we have now on this earth. The body we have now is a seed. The glorified body is something different. Paul writes, spiritual is not the first, the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, is earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so are those who are earthy. Which means while I still have this earthy body, I'm still going to be a little like Adam. Yeah. Which means suffering from the effects of sin, even though Christ has conquered sin. And still struggling against sin, even though Christ has conquered sin and death. My spirit is willing to obey the whole degree of Christ's law, but my body is weak. But that will be done away with. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And this isn't just talking about those who are born again, having a spirit born to them, right? Within them, about them. Still, I'm not sure how to put that. But this is referring to the resurrection. When we are finally given that heavenly body, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, and we in this room still do, right? We haven't experienced the resurrection yet. I uh, don't think anybody has, because Paul, Paul told us exactly when that was going to happen. When Christ returned, there will be the resurrection. And at that moment, he will hand the kingdom over to his Father. That's what we've learned in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So nobody's experienced the resurrection yet, but when we do, in the glorified body we receive, we will be just like Christ, even in the flesh that we have, even in the material bodies that we are given at the moment of the resurrection. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And this is the great hope we have in Christ. The hope of the resurrection. Of the state of being. This means, by the way, that eternal life, when we live forever and an everlasting way, it means, no, we will not be angels living in the clouds, playing harps, or forever singing around the heavenly throne of God. 
Uh, such an existence, I think, would be boring. God did not create people in the garden for such an existence, and God created people for a good purpose, a good reason. In the resurrection and forever on this earth, apparently, we're reading 1 Corinthians, right? We will be given bodies to continue to steward the earth, to continue to explore the cosmos, to learn about the depths of our oceans, the plethora of living beings and creatures, to continue to do astrophysics, yes. To continue to build and to continue to make, to continue to study and discover, to continue to build relationships and have fellowship to continue to enjoy the fruit of God's earth forever and ever and ever with a real tongue that has real taste buds and ears that never lose their hearing and perfect eyes that never die and a mind that never brain farts. Yeah? A time where there will be no death or sadness or crying in the resurrection. This is the great hope of Christianity. And it is bliss, but it is bliss in a perfect balance of life, which the flesh cannot achieve on this earth. A perfect balance of work and play and rest. And I, for one, am very excited about that. I have no idea what that's like. I haven't experienced it because I think it's impossible on this earth. We, we learn how to balance some things here, which is good. We balance it to the best of our ability, but in these natural bodies, it's difficult. But then, we will be glorified with a glory that is not of our biological nature, but instead with a glory that is entirely of Christ, even having a body that is uniquely crafted according to the will of the Father by Christ for us. That, that is good news. That's very good news. Now, I imagine there are many more questions this morning than answers. And I'm sure we'll get to that on Black Top Pulpit this evening, but I am not sure... For now, we know this. We will experience resurrection, not animation, and the resurrection will be good. Amen.